Hey, teachers. Welcome to episode number two, which is about how creativity will save schools. Better yet, this episode is about defining and explaining this creativity thing in the first place. So what is it? What is creativity, you ask? If I called on you in class right now with that question, how would you answer? It's my opinion that creativity is misunderstood at best and definitely underutilized. Uh, Obviously, if I think it will save our current education models, right? Um, It's undervalued, misunderstood, and underutilized, even though it's considered to be one of the number one skills needed in the contemporary and future economy, which would cause you to think it should be a priority in schools, which is a joke because it is actually rarely taught and almost never specifically or practically in a way that it breaks down or through the connections to other crucial skills to be successful in life, such as collaboration or emotional intelligence or learning from failure, self-reflection, and connecting curriculum to our own lives while changing previously held biases, just to name a few. Today, I'm going to review some things I said in the first podcast about this topic, but go much deeper into the soul of what makes these concepts tick. As mentioned, the concepts discussed on the topic of creativity will be a constant theme throughout this pod. Surprise, it's fundamental to being able to innovate education. How can we destroy outdated models of education to build new forms and innovate the rest of it when we lack the ability to perceive new possibilities not in front of our faces or make less obvious connections for ourselves and others? How can we change if we fear new things, if we fear change itself? If we've never been shown how to be creative and open and willing to take chances, embrace failure as one of the greatest teachers available to us, you know, this makes me think about uh, FDR. Uh, One of the crowning abilities of Franklin Delano Roosevelt was his willingness to try new things, even if there was a chance of failure, because at least there was movement and opportunity to learn from the failures. I believe John Dewey once said, thought must produce action. How can you know if, you, if something will work until you try it? How can you be creative if you don't create? This is core to what we are going to talk about today. Honestly, this is such a massive concept and is so immensely crucial to our major cognitive functions that it's hard to decide on where to start. Education is complicated and connected across everything we do as a society. Creativity is something unique to the individual that requires connections to other people, places, and things in order to grow. Much like a seed needing water, sun, and fertile soil, it might have the potential to become a tree, but creativity isn't getting anywhere without varying experiences, having access to resources to promote growth, time, and space, the reflection and ideas of others, motivation, or the ability to build on those who came before, just to name a few. And I'm already getting ahead of myself. So let's just start where the majority uh, of my, or or where my journey of creativity started, specifically as it relates to education, Uh, early in my education career, which which is basically brings us to a brief story I shared a little bit in the first pod. Uh, Before this keystone moment, I took this process for granted just like most others do. Until this particular class period early in my teaching career when a student told me that they could not do a project because they weren't creative. And he was being very serious. He meant every word of that statement. Otherwise, in his other content classes, this was a successful student. 
most likely headed for the college of his choice. So as I do with my, my classes, um, let me start with that question. Uh, I'll ask you again, what do you think creativity is? What is the best definition you can come up with right now? I've already previewed some of my own thoughts on the answer, so you've been given more than my students usually get. I'll give you a moment to think about it. Already, your imagination is taking over, and you're likely engaging in the creative process in an attempt to define it based on your previous perceptions of it. I'm now starting to recall some of the responses I have received from students. Of course, my favorite came from that one student who said he wasn't creative. His eventual answer was that creativity is imagination. And after some more pushing, he said, I, I don't know, it's magic. The light bulb that pops up over cartoons heads. Well, the light bulb never pops up for me, he said. I think this is the view that most people actually hold about creativity, that it's some magical process with unknown properties. I've encountered few people that acknowledge it as the very specific mental and physical process that it is. That's right. Creativity is mental and physical. Both things are needed to be a creative person. But few have also had any learning experiences in which creativity was named, defined, and presented as the main learning outcome, so it's totally understandable. How often does a person get good at math without being taught the specific equation processes needed to answer a specific problem. Such it is with the problem of creativity. The most simple way I can explain it here before I get into the details, and something I want you to fundamentally grasp about creativity, is, it, is that something can't come from nothing. But before moving on, let's entertain the definition of imagination for a moment. Since that student brought it up, and uh, we haven't defined that. So uh, let me just ask you really quickly, are imagination and creativity the same? No, you say? They are not. Are they linked? Yes. Defined, imagination is simply the ability to visualize what isn't there, to perceive things that are not in front of you. Basically, seeing something without it existing physically through sensory inputs. We have the prefrontal, prefrontal cortex to thank for this ability. For instance, if we read a book, the prefrontal cortex area acts up and allows us to visualize the word and make it more useful than just a word on paper. Skyscraper. Did every one of you just mentally perceive a tall building of some sort? Maybe you just formed a loose visual representation of a specific building. If you live in Chicago, maybe the Sears Tower popped into your brain. What are you talking about, Willis? LOL. Uh, anyway, this mental visualization thing you can do. Uh, you're using your imagination to do it. I consider it an important tool for creativity. The fact that you might have pictured a specific building like the Sears Tower has more to do with the creativity part of the bigger equation. But still, imagination is an important part of it. It's just not what creativity is. Most people fail to even acknowledge the root word of creativity when I ask them this, the, to define it, which obviously is create, right? How can you be creative if you never do anything or share it? Oh my gosh, I'm thinking of the most creative thing right now. I am so creative. Nope. It has to go beyond just the mental part and into the physical realm for it to be in, con 
considered something that is part of the creative process as a whole. I'll give you that, that some visionaries like Steve Jobs, someone who had a lot of ideas but never did any of the work himself, can be considered creative without doing the creating himself. But it, it matters a lot that the making was happening in response to his ideas. And I would argue that Steve Jobs, although maybe not a great people person, harbored many other characteristics of an innovator. Namely, he made connections that others didn't see and was shameless about building on the ideas of others. But if he never connected with people who could do the work, Steve Jobs would never have been considered creative. It would just been somebody with some ideas that never went anywhere. Let me shift gears slightly here and again share a quote from episode number one, which is an adaptation of a Khalil Gibran quote about children. It's very appropriate uh, to make this comparison to children here. Um, So anyway, here's the quote. Creativity comes through you, but is not from you. And though it is with you, it does not belong to you. So let me stick with this and the children analogy for a minute. Again, keeping in mind that that quote was originally about children. Though a child comes from two parents, it is its own person. But how has this, how was this child created in the first place? I'll spare you the birds and the bees story, because although it should be considered a more important part of student educational experiences, this podcast is not about sex ed. A child is essentially, they are the composite of both parents' genes, of their DNA, that has evolved over centuries. They're literally copies of both parents' genes, combined, and then transformed into something new. This child then becomes the product of their environment and lived experiences. The ideas they will form from the product of shared experiences with others built on the biases and foundations of their biology. The more unique the the experiences this child has, the more potential it has to connect different ideas to. The people they meet, the relationships they form will have just as much impact on who they become, maybe even more than that initial moment of creation when their parents' genes combined. But make no mistake, these ideas they connect to from others and the experiences they make, they were not born out of thin air or nothing. They were formed with words that someone else invented after years of tweaking and innovating that vocabulary, which was built on the experience of those who came before that. How can you have an idea without the words to explain it? How can you take credit for the idea when you're using someone else's words, other experiences that other people had a part of? Maybe you're thinking, but hey, Chris, what about emotions? They have a part in this, and they were always there. Aha, aha, yes, this is true. Emotions were there first, but don't get ahead of me just yet. This is a topic for actually another podcast. This one is already going to be too long just talking about creativity, but we will get into emotional intelligence and how it relates in the near future. I just hope you're getting the gist of what I'm trying to explain here. Maybe I've gone on too much of a tangent. And I'm thinking it's time for my best working definition of what creativity is. We've touched the surface enough. I think you're ready. I'll share it and then the steps I've identified as being important to it. And then we can dissect it and move into more connections and resources on the topic today and in future episodes. So I Googled it, of course. The Google definition of creativity is the use of the imagination or original ideas, especially in the production of an artistic work. This is a nice definition, but that definition doesn't go deep enough. 
I've actually been disappointed with a lot of Google's definitions of different words. Uh, specifically, another one is gender. If you look up gender, it's totally inaccurate. Merriam-Webster's is simply the ability to create. I love that it's that simple on some levels, but again, not quite deep or specific enough. Again, I also love that it talks to the main element, which is to create. Creativity is the ability to create, and create is so fundamental to the process, but that's not enough to really explain what creativity actually is, especially for a room full of high school students. Okay, so creativity is essentially a process that begins mentally a thought process, and manifests physically through a creation process. It starts as a thought process that involves making connections. More specifically, these connections occur across the neural pathways in our brains, of which were formed by your learned experiences and from others. These connections are then translated into a physical experience of creating something new. You don't need to be an artist to create something new. It is important, however, that these creations are something new. Otherwise, you're just copying something. Copying might be essential to learning and creativity, which I'll get into. And um, I'll dig deeper even in further episodes. But it does not make you creative. Something that usually comes up here in my classes is whether or not you can make something completely unique or original. And the simple answer is no. But It does involve solving a problem in a new way or changing your perspective, taking risks, facing fears, or breaking with routine and doing something different for the sake of doing something different. My students' most common answer to the creativity question is thinking outside the box. Defining the box is actually a pretty fun mental exercise that sometimes I just jump right into with my students depending on where we're at in a unit. You can do that amongst yourselves uh, on your own time, Uh, which is, again, to define what is the box that people are referring to when they say, think outside the box. If you want to pause this podcast and think about that for a bit, I'll be here when you get back. So there's a Shots of Awe video, a YouTube video on the topic of creativity. In fact, there are a lot uh, from this this, uh, YouTube channel called Shots of Awe about the topic of creativity that I use quite a bit. But there's one specifically that's about uh, the inside the box element. The title is Creativity is Madness, if you want to look it up. I like to show this one to my students during the creativity unit, unit, among others. So let me play you a short sample here. Uh, It's about 15 seconds. But again, look it up on your own time if you want to see the full thing. So most um, of these videos, these Shots of Awe videos, begin with a quote. This video begins with a quote from Ernest Becker, which is, We might say that the artist and the neurotic bite off more than they can chew, but the artist spews it back out again and chews it over in an objectified way as an external, active work project. This actually has more implications for concepts later in the episode, but let me get to the Shots of Awe video right now. So here's 15 seconds of it. 
So I've always been fascinated by the relationship between creativity and madness, right? Like Timothy Leary famously said, in order to use your head, you've got to go out of your mind. Now this of course implies a kind of willingness to sort of go to unknown places, to visit mental landscapes that are alien, a willingness to sort of leave one's comfort zone, to decondition one's thinking, one's reflexive responses to stimuli, to go to other realms of the mind. You know, catalyzing the imagination is like diving head first towards the unknown. And there's always a potential of getting hurt. You know, it is said that the mystic and the madman are swimming in the same waters. But the mystic, you know, he's like an artist surfing it down. He's bringing back visions. He's bringing back souvenirs from these ecstatic spaces and places. But, you know, at the end of the day, the artist does become depleted. The artist is sacrificing part of himself to bring back those visions, to create a phase change in the consciousness of society. He leaves the consensus trance. He leaves our cultural operating systems. He shows us different reality tunnels that gives us a sense of perspective. Us I hope you like that, that short video. Um, so I don't want to digest it too much. Just want to move on. Uh, we're about third of the way through this episode right now. So I want to take a brief moment to consider what the implications of what some of these concepts are for a world where all the information in the world is in your back pocket. Within likely the device you're using to listen to this podcast, given that the content I just shared with you is rarely shared with students in their entire school experience, and that creativity is considered to be one of the most important skills needed in the world. Consider multiple generations of people that have not been exposed to these learning opportunities. Imagine for a moment, moment if only 10% of our student population was being taught basic functions of math. Sure, Many of us would probably get to a point of simple addition and subtraction, but how would we meet the needs of basic society having never been exposed to the rules of addition or multiplication? Now, math is very important to humanity, but consider that creativity makes you better at math and everything else on top of it, and that you are more likely to need, and our society is more likely to need people with a profound ability for finding creative solutions to problems than they are to need calculus in their lives. How many of you even use algebra on a regular basis? I'm sure all of you have taken uh, countless, countless classes on math nearly every year of your education experience. And unless you're a mathematician of some sort or it's integral to your career, you haven't really used anything beyond basic addition or subtraction since school. I'm also sure only about 10% of the basic population has learned about creativity at some point in some way and in a meaningful, specific way. But never have they learned it in a class devoted to the whole topic. And again, this is not meant to be a knock on math. While I might be awful at math, I highly value those who excel at it. It's extremely important and can be a highly creative subject. I just watched an amazing documentary on Netflix, for instance, about black holes, and everything we know about them is basically because of math. I'd argue it's a few, it's, it's a few scientists working creatively, though, that has produced these breakthroughs. I know a really amazing math teacher who I'm hoping to interview in the future that brings a great deal of creativity to her practice. I just think it's counterproductive to value some content subjects over others, especially when they're under... when when the underutilized one is considered the most important skill to have in the world. How about a sports analogy, if you will? You're not going to become better at baseball by only working out your arms. 
there's a lot of other parts that make you better at baseball. Consider creativity is your core in this sports analogy as well. Your core is going to be responsible for a lot of the things that you do well in baseball, from running to playing the field to hitting to throwing to catching. Your core is at the root, the fundamental place, right? So I'm trying to say that we don't need everyone to excel at math equally, and we definitely don't want everyone thinking the same exact way. We should want people to develop their unique skills and talents after building a basic foundation across all content, across all areas of the body, right? Not everyone needs to take calculus, and nor should they. Our engineers, accountants, and scientists are vital to the progression of society. We need them to take higher level math. Everyone, however, needs to be more creative. No matter what you do in life, excel at, struggle at, or just by simply being a part of society, being creative will drastically improve your performance and build a far more productive world. And I'm going to tell you how. But back to the situation we were just considering. What are the implications of these conditions? All the information in your back pocket a society hungry for new solutions to new problems, a society unable to shift and progress out of the industrial age, with climate change very potentially threatening our very experience, and an American society still drowning in racist ideologies that destroy lives and hold everyone back. We sure as heck do not need more people with brains crammed full of useless information about dates or names when a quick search on their phone will produce more accurate information. We have more information than we know what to do with, Seriously, navigating all this information is a serious problem for society, a problem I haven't heard a single solution to, and I've consumed a decent amount of media in which people talk about this problem. What we need are people with the creative ability to do something useful with all of this access to information that we have. People who excel in quickly accessing knowledge on their own, and not the same information that some curriculum has dictated to all students for the past 100 plus years, but accurate and personal information that relates to the needs of the specific user that can be used to solve or build upon the specific situation that this person is tackling. The computer is quickly replacing the function of a less than perfect human memory. If we learn how to utilize that more meaningfully, then I think some great things will start to happen. And if we embrace that in education, same is true. So what should, we, what should be the main goal for developing the human brain? If, if the computer is a better memory and information source than our own, what should our brain be focused on? What do we need schools to develop in learners with the goal of building a better society? My answer, shocker, is creativity. Neuroscience has recently provided a lot of physical, biological evidence for concepts the social sciences have been figuring out for some time. Having read a great deal into it, and based on years of clinical experiences in the classroom, it's my opinion that creativity is the operating system for learning, and exactly why it will save education. It's the core function of learning. Going back to the baseball analogy, working out your core again, supports all other muscle function. In the operating system framework, your memory is the essential hard drive, right? Okay, so let's talk some neuroscience for just a minute. This is what I've learned about how the brain works, and I think it's helpful to simplify. So let's just start with a mouse's brain. 
In a mouse's brain, the input and output are right next to each other. So when an input comes through, such as, here is a stick, the mouse doesn't go through a bunch of possibilities before deciding to walk over it. It just has an input, stick, and then the output, walk over it. There's no space between the input and output in the brain to allow for optional pathways to occur. The human brain, however, has a great deal of space between the input and output parts of the brain. It has evolved over time to allow for more space. With humans, inputs in the brain are constantly being smashed together with other pathways across the whole brain. Every input mixing with past experiences, thoughts, emotions, etc., which allows for the various output options. So with the stick, a person might pick it up or throw it, draw with it, pretend it's a sword, jump over it, stomp on it, crack it, etc. Or a person might imagine multiple versions of a building structure when reading the word skyscraper, right? All of this requires connections. Connections are the core function of creativity and at the heart of its process. In neuroscience terms, we're talking connections across cells. Lots and lots of cells. Brain cells alone are not impressive. We need a lot of them working together in an activity pattern, making connections across millions of cells, interacting with each other, which foreshadows something I'm going to talk about in a little bit, which is collaboration. Lots of things working together for one cause. Did you know that artists have been found to have more gray matter in the brain? You might be asking yourself, what is gray matter and why is it important? Uh, basically because gray matter contains most of the brain's neural cell bodies. It also includes regions of the brain involved in muscle control and sensory perceptions such as seeing and hearing, memory, emotions, speech, decision-making, and self-control. Its development happens earlier in life and peaks in a person's 20s, which makes it even more important to be exposed to creative processes earlier on in development. Biology has prepared us for this development. I'm reminded of a great quote from Felicia Rashad which is, um, I think it's, before a child talks, they sing. Before they write, they draw. As soon as they stand, they dance. Art is fundamental to human expression. I find myself having to say this a lot, but I'm not trying to say art is superior to other content areas. I always argue for more balance in education and across contents. But the evidence is overwhelming that art is fundamental to human development, and it's definitely crucial for developing creativity. Again, neuroscience has found artists have more gray matter, which is so important to brain function. For another example, the Neuroeducation Initiative at John Hopkins University, obviously a very important university that deals with uh, medical-related elements, uh, was studying the physical impacts of learning on the brain. So a neuroeducation initiative, studying the impacts of learning on the brain. Through their studies, they found that art processes were so fundamental to brain development that they ended up focusing the majority of their work on just that and concluded, and I quote, Art forms engage crucial crucial neural networks, causing unique development and circuiting, also including leading to more gray matter. It is clear that art education and experience is an essential aspect to the full functioning of the human brain. Children who receive intensive arts training show significantly higher performance on achievement tasks. This ended up leading to a clear recommendation from the initiative, and I quote again, 
we recommend one hour of arts education per day. Neuroscientist Samir Ziki, uh, just for another example, uh, his work has focused on understanding the core functions of the brain. And he concluded that creativity is central. He wrote that it basically reveals a parallel between the functions of art and the functions of the brain, which drives us to an obvious conclusion that the overall function of creativity is an extension of the function of the brain. The ability to form meaning from sensory information or the ability to imagine by visualizing things in the absence of sensory information. This means that creativity, again, as I said, is the core processor for learning and cognitive development. So let's get back to that input-output concept for a second. Remember, more space between them allows for more possible connection. And this brings us back to another key factor here, which is failure or mistakes. Two things the traditional education system does not promote. Consider that an input leading directly to an output without options removes all chances for mistakes to happen. If you think of the brain as a program, which it really is, without mistakes, you just end up where the program said you would go. In the case of the mouse, walk over the stick. This is why intelligence is actually easier than creativity. It's easy to make the logical connection that's right in front of you. It isn't enough though. We need to make mistakes. Walking over the stick is probably not the best answer. It's definitely not as fun as picking it up, painting it, combining it with others to make a wooden wind chime decoration, for instance. If you think of this in evolution terms as a mistake would be a mutation, which is essential to the biological progression over time. We have mutations to thank for the immense biodiversity the Earth has generated over billions of years. Mistakes are awesome, people. They are so important. And without that space, we don't get to make mistakes. So without varied experiences or collaboration with other people and their unique experiences slash ideas to build neural connecting points in our brains, the program will lead to the same conclusion every time. On top of this, our brains default to the neural pathway that, that it's used to. Building more pathways across multiple contents allows for more connections and various concepts to align in surprising ways. It's not all shiny happy, though. Specialization does come at a cost. To try new things, you have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be frustrated and be willing to fail. Often. I have an Einstein quote on my fridge that says, I think and think for months and years. 99 times the conclusion is false. The hundredth time, I am right. While it might not always be logical, it is crucial to learning new things, which requires a lot of failures and acknowledging we might, be, we might have been wrong about something. Can you imagine people willfully admitting that they were wrong about something and open to learning something new. And here's the really bad part, and something that is the root cause of why it's so darn hard for us to change or try new things. It's an important motivation behind the status quo, actually, which today is standardization or some form of it in school. Our brains don't like rewriting neural pathways. It's easier to build on what was already there than whipping, wiping out a pathway and starting all over. 
Our brains send us chemical rewards for getting things right. It doesn't inherently enjoy failure. But we have an ability to program ourselves to learn to embrace failures as possibly our greatest learning experience. Learning involves making new connections and pathways, which often means rewriting previously held conceptions. If you're just constantly rewarding your brain by relearning something that is already written in your brain's central cellular pathway, it's just a form of, uh, and I'm sorry for this analogy, but I couldn't just think of one right now. Uh, It's just a form of mental masturbation, actually. I also think that learning something new is a form of cognitive ecstasy. There is actually a Shots of Awe video about that, too. I think learning is one of the most rewarding parts of the human experience. Uh, If you want to see that Shots of Awe video, look up learning uh, cognitive ecstasy, uh, and it'll come up. But basically, again, it says that uh, learning is one of the most rewarding parts of human experience. Even though our brains might be biologically set up to go against it, it also has other elements that really reward us for it. We have to get our brains off the path of least resistance. Luckily, our brains also crave novelty, the new, because they do get bored. We need to seek balance between the familiar and the new. This is something I'll actually touch upon in the next episode on creativity. My hope is that this is starting to make some sense to you Uh, why we need to push boundaries, seek new pathways, embrace failure, and challenge the status quo, but within the range of limitations of what works. Um, There's a concept involving, and I'm not sure if I made this up or not, called the creative threshold. Think about uh, a rubber band being pulled apart, which builds tension. There's a creative tension in that. And if it reaches the limits of its tension, a.k.a. the creative threshold, it will snap. I also hope to cover this uh, specific concept in a later podcast episode in more depth as well. But we really need to move on. I think as a society, we have fallen far too much into our own preconceived ideas, many of which were built years ago by people who did not know better. We seem to be terrible at learning from our mistakes. That and a lot of greedy people with power don't want things to get better for people, right? But now we have new evidence and knowledge that challenge the very nature of the systems we have built and our arrogance, our unwillingness to change, a lack of developing our creative power and persuading our brains to take an input directly to the same old output over and over it, ha- it all has us spinning our tires, which are stuck in mud. What I'm talking about here is called confirmation bias, which is fueled by cognitive dissonance. We have a fever, and the only prescription for this fever is creativity. I wish I could do a good Christopher Walken impersonation, and I would say that over. It's important to note that countless studies on how learning impacts brain development suggest and demand that students spend more time with creative processes and also art-related experiences because of their symbiosis. I'm far from the only one forming these conclusions. I consider this a social justice imperative. As I've said, the civil rights issue of our time I think using creativity as it is in our education system, the core processor of learning will lead to solutions across most of our major problems in the world. 
whether it's a lack of economic innovation and inequities, social and racial bigotry and arrogance, or the environmental catastrophe of climate change looming over us, we need people thinking outside of their boxes, embracing change and some of the failures that might come from those growing pains while we find solutions. Educational systems that embrace this fact present a pattern of achievement and cultural health that is superior for student development, regardless of what college or career they eventually seek. When creativity, collaboration, and imagination are considered top skills needed in the modern economy with creative industries, hungry for an innovative uh, and cultured workforce, where are the students learning it? When students across the country face emotional wellness epidemics, why aren't the arts being utilized to build expressive strength and compassion, among other things? I'm realizing just how many episodes it will take to cover this one concept, and I'm also super excited for the journey right now. But we need to summarize and clarify what the heck creativity is, followed by a few more connections, and then close out the episode for today. So before getting to the like summary, Let's do a little review, and then I will identify the steps involved in the creative process, through which I will try and put creativity into a box and, it, and then label its parts, keeping in mind that the very nature of creativity pushes against this action, right? And remember, creativity is a process that begins mentally and leads to a physical manifestation, something that exists in the physical world. I include music as something that exists in the physical world, by the way. Sound is a wave that your senses detect, right? These steps involved in creativity are the same I teach to students, but there are more other slightly different variations out there from different people that might work better for you. Mine includes six major steps, so let's just get right into it. So the first step in creativity is dun-dun-dun, inspiration. This involves collecting inputs, which in part involves copying other people's work. Note, curiosity is very important here because we must be curious before any learning can happen and inspiration fuels our curiosity. This calls to mind the need for students to be able to make personal connections to any project. And when the assignment or problem is defined, your first step is to find inspiration to search out other people's solutions or just click through Pinterest for an hour the way I do. And then this eventually leads us to step number two, in which the imagination gets to work to visualizing concepts and then making connections, which is the important term here, or in other words, combining inputs across different pathways. Imagination is an important tool throughout this process and it gets going here. So, Step two is connections. Step one is inspiration. Step three is when the transformations result. You can call this the innovation step. If you are making a painting or writing a book, this is the concept development, ideation, or very rough draft part in the equation. This is when you might start combining two unrelated things to a tangible idea. Two different parents' genes becoming one. And voila, a new creation might be born. If I were using the design thinking process, this is where a prototype might be formed. Or not. You might not be happy with the draft, and you go back to step two or even one again. Still, moving on to step number four, which is to make a prototype or begin the physical creation process with a more substantial draft. Step one is inspiration. 
Step two is connections. Step three is innovation. And step four is prototype. Start making a prototype. And then step five is the really hard part. I call this the work step. It's the potential 100 hours spent painting or countless hours writing a book with a pretty clear visual concept of what you want the final product to be. Keep in mind that you might jump back to any of the previous steps throughout this process again. It's, this is also, in step five, work, when the magic starts to happen of mistakes and failures that will pop up and present learning opportunities throughout this step. It's so important to embrace these moments that if uh, a famous, uh, I think a famous man with a fro once called happy accidents, or in biological terms, again, mutations, there's a lot to be learned at this point in the process. For me, if I'm making a painting, it's about responding to myself over and over, like I'm having a conversation with myself. Make a move, think about it in the context of the work, make another, another move. What is the work telling me to do? So let's consider that you think, you think, and I say this to students a lot, you think you have finished the work, step five, the work stage, or the physical creation part of the creative process after hours of effort. You might think you're done and ready to celebrate, and some people definitely do end here, which might be okay. But if you really want to make something great, step six is crucial, and that is critique. If you have ever made anything, then you know how important it is to get other opinions about your work. We often have a perspective block in front of our minds that do not allow us to perceive the work objectively enough. Plus, we are only applying our own preconceived notions on what is successful in the first place. This could also be referred to as the reflective or assessment process. This step could also be ongoing throughout the work stage. I mentioned that I perceive it as a conversation with myself, right? Just bring another person or two into the conversation. I often place a critique in the middle of a student project for this reason. One of the major mistakes that our education system makes here is that the assessment stage has a finite quality, a cemented in stone nature that is fundamentally destructive to learning. If we finally embrace what we should, what should be the number one mission of a school, which is simply to facilitate and cultivate learning, right? then we need to look hard at our assessment and grading practices. And then throw them out, along with the standardization tests as well. Learning and creativity are not finite. The term growth mindset gets used a lot in educational lingo, uh, especially referring to these ideas. I've often told my students that a painting of mine might never be done. I might come back to it five years later. Or that painting I thought was finished was really just a prototype for a future series of work that finally feels worthy of, for the world. The point is, this is a constant and circular process that never really ends because the destination is not to finish, it's to learn. Creativity is actually about learning. I know, I know it's still important to finish and have due dates, but what's the reality of due dates in the real world anyway? When, when does a new innovative architectural project ever get finished on time? If you need to push the launch date back of something important because it's not ready, you push the launch date back. Again, this brings to mind the idea of growth mindset, which our education systems say a lot, but they don't really embrace. And it begins to touch on why we need to rethink the whole idea of the traditional education schedule and expectations of due dates in the first place. Honestly, I, could, I preach balance here again, 
we need to find the creative threshold of education, right? I'm not saying we should just knock all the walls down and start over. I just think we are on the opposite end of the spectrum and pushing the rubber band into itself rather than stretching it, which is its true nature, to stretch it and see what we can do with it. And this is important here. If you, if you never make it to step five, if you never start doing the work, it's very difficult to learn anything. Thought must produce action. Otherwise, you get stuck in a circular pattern that eventually sucks you in like a vortex. Maybe you're part of a team that regularly meets about improving some aspect of your school. If you never attempt any work, never put it out there for the world to respond to, you're just talking in hypotheticals that you can, can't really even learn from. Thought and good intentions aren't enough. Channel your inner Franklin Roosevelt. Implement the plan and learn from it. We have too much fear of failure. And guess what? The same solution that works somewhere else might not work in your unique environment anyway. No one has the answers. We just have to start trying more and learning through the work. I hope I've explained the steps involved in creativity thoroughly enough right here, clearly enough. And I wish it were even this simple because there is so much more to it. We have really just scratched the surface and a three-hour podcast episode just doesn't seem reasonable. Or maybe I'm just allowing the status quo to dictate how I podcast. Well, whatever. We can't change all the norms at once, right? Or can we? Um, So let's review six steps. The six steps anyway. Let's just review the six steps and end by talking about something so important and inherently linked to creativity in a similar way that imagination is. So review. The steps in creativity are, step one, inspiration. Go on Pinterest. Type in a word that has something to do with what you need to create. The second step is making connections. Connect those inspirations to other things. Make connections across your experiences. Make connections across things that other people have done. And this is when you get to step three, the innovation, the transformation part of the stage, where something is starting to form in your brain that is different from what someone else has done. Then you are ready to start step four, make the prototype, or in other words, start Start some concrete drafts. Simple sketching and, and note-taking can be, can be taking place throughout the process. This step is more decisive and meaningful than that. Then you go to step five, which is the hard part, doing the work. A lot of my students are really good at starting projects. It's when they get kind of in the middle there, when they're really trudging through the work, that it gets hard. Because now you have a really good vision of what you want and you're ready to dive into the finished product, but it rarely comes out the way you want. Again, please embrace failures and mistakes as, as they are vital to the creative process. And then that brings you to step six, once you've created the thing that you wanted to create, which is critique, reflection, or call it assessment. It should involve other people and could send you back to step four or even three, or even two, if the situation requires it. But you don't really end up with a great work if you don't do the reflection and the, crea- the critique part. This is where the creative process really takes hold. And again, it's circular, right? At any point, and sometimes never finishes. You know, time doesn't actually exist anyway, right? Well, definitely not in the way we perceive it. Anyway, uh, that's something I do in my classes a lot. I go off on tangents about things. Uh, Is it beginning to make sense why creativity is the core processing system of the brain's efforts to learn? The information is just a puzzle piece. 
thrown across the floor without any order or ability to connect them. Alone, the puzzle pieces slash information are useless. Creativity is the ability to connect the pieces and create something useful. That's why it's considered to be the most important skill a person can possess. And it's not taught very much in schools, if at all purposefully, never in a class devoted to it. And as we continue to cut more art, more and more art programs, fail to adequately support innovations that are right in front of our faces and rely more and more on the status quo, we will cultivate fewer and fewer opportunities for students to, to experience creativity. Okay? So I hope we've covered the steps adequately enough for comprehension here. Let's move on and wrap this episode up. We've talked about how Im- imagination is a very important tool involved in creativity, but another and equally powerful one is collaboration. Collaboration is, essen- is essentially inherent at any point in the process if utilized well and can enhance creativity at any point exponentially. This is largely due to the fact that your brain is limited to its own perceptions, memories, and experiences. Imagination is limited to your own brain, and you are always only ever building on others who came before you anyways and using the tools others made before you. It's impossible to make anything completely unique or original. As Sir Isaac Newton said, we stand on the shoulders of giants. It's because of this fact that collaboration is inherent during the connection step of the process, no matter what. Whether or not you choose to bring another person into the work, if you do, you expand your library of inputs by double because you've added a second library, and so on. But be aware that more people can create more chaos, So it's important to have structures in place. This is a topic, again, I'll cover later in another episode. So if you expand your library, your memory of knowledge and experiences to others, then you drastically increase the potential connections and unique perspectives available to your creation. And because everything you know and all the experiences you have had and all of the tools you have used have been built by others, the heart and slash core of creativity is inherently collaborative. But this isn't the only place that collaboration enhances or fuels the creative process. For one, it can serve your, serve your creations throughout. It's during the reflective process, the critique, that it offers a tremendous amount of enhancement opportunities. And as I said, another word for the critique or, or reflective part of the process could be assessment, especially in education terms. But there's a great deal I'd like to talk about here, which is why I would like to save it for a future episode, one in which we examine different modalities of assessment and connect to the creative process through design thinking. For now, let's just say that this is a circular experience involving reflection, critiques from others, revisions, rinse, and repeat. It leads to a refined product and is essential to effective creativity. This also calls out our school's system's competitive nature in that we are always comparing students to each other, all of which conflict with the reality of how we actually learn and grow, which is collectively. I hear so many people talk about how competition fuels growth and creativity. Maybe sometimes within specific environments with careful boundaries, it does, but it's collaboration that is the true fuel of creativity and most evolution. Humans are successful because we are really good at building complex social systems and working together. Alone, we are weak and lion food. Together, we can build skyscrapers that might even one day be environmentally friendly or sustainable in the least. Together, we can build or create anything because the combined creative power of the human race is infinite. 
This is also why it's vital that teachers start collaborating more. Working closely with another teacher in the classroom has been one of the greatest learning moments of my teaching career. We should be trying harder to build spaces and schedules that allow for this to happen more. And it's why teacher-to-teacher mentorship is one of the easiest ways to improve a school system. Again, this is something for a later episode on the topic of teacher coaching and mentorship in which we talk about the specifics on it, but it's important to mention. This is also why it's so very important that we want people to think differently than each other and to catalog different experiences into their memory hard drives. If everyone is learning the exact same content and in the exact same way, never mind the fact that we all have different and unique forms of intelligences that require us to learn in slightly different ways, be it visually, orally, physically, or through our emotions, just to name a few. But we should seek out and cultivate a learning environment in which students are sharing and collaborating with each other from different points of view so they can learn and grow together. If everyone thinks the same and has the exact same information, we stagnate. Stagnant pools of water grow algae and are poisonous. Nothing happens. Imagine what an environment that truly embraces diversity, diversity on multiple levels, Imagine what this does for social-emotional learning, something that will also be the topic of another future episode. This is creativity. It's about connections, and it's connected to everything. We are also talking about metacognition, folks, the awareness and understanding of one's own thought process, teaching a person to fish rather than giving them a fish. Think of the fish as information or facts, right, in the learning process. If if you recall the three R's I shared in the first episode, rigor, which means meaningful rigor, relevance, and relationships, maybe you can start to see why these, these three things can be so helpful in visualizing the needed new forms of learning for our educational systems needed to meet the needs of the 21st century. Or how the four C's, creativity, critical literacy analysis, cross-cultural communication, cross-cultural collaboration, enhance what should be our shared mission of improving the ability of our educational systems to help students actually do what it seems schools should be doing, which is to learn, which is not the same as passing tests. Let's not get me started on that. In a near future episode on creativity, I'm going to talk about a series of video resources I always use with my students. I find it immensely practical and comprehensive, and the students enjoy the series as well. It offers a very simple equation of the creative process that is easy for students to remember. It demystifies perceptions of it, and it highlights the collaborative core that is creativity. It's called Everything is a Remix, and it's really all in the name. The series was originally four parts that are each eight minutes long. A fifth episode was later added that we'll focus on in that episode as well because it brings it all together in a powerful way. Um, The main creator is a person who goes by the name Kirby Ferguson. If you Google everything as a remix, you will likely find his webpage that is full of other videos and resources, some of which I will also share when we get into that next episode. But I wanted to play a small portion of one of the episodes uh, for you to take us out today. Uh, Of course, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm already learning so much through this process, and I really hope you are too. Sincerely, uh, let me know your critiques. I really welcome, I'm open to critique. I think it's like vital to the learning process, uh, and I think there's nothing more important than learning. I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, You can make suggestions through my Facebook at facebook.com slash heyteacherspod. That's all one word, right? Facebook.com slash heyteacherspod. Or at heyteacherspod on Instagram. 
or by emailing me at c.sakora at ihsae.org. That is c.sykora at ihsae.org. Um, so without further ado, here's Kirby Ferguson sending us out. The act of creation is surrounded by a fog of myths. Myths that creativity comes via inspiration, that original creations break the mold, that they're the products of geniuses, and appear as quickly as electricity can heat a filament. But creativity isn't magic. It happens by applying ordinary tools of thought to existing materials. And the soil from which we grow our creations is something we scorn and misunderstand even though it gives us so much, and that's copying. Put simply, copying is how we learn. We can't introduce anything new until we're fluent in the language of our domain, and we do that through emulation. For instance, all artists spend their formative years producing derivative work. Bob Dylan's first album contained 11 cover songs. Richard Pryor began his stand-up career doing a not very good imitation of Bill Cosby. And Hunter S. Thompson retyped The Great Gatsby just to get the feel of writing a great novel. Nobody starts out original. We need copying to build a foundation of knowledge and understanding. And after that, things can get interesting.